Amen. Welcome, Hope Church. You can be seated. Glad you're here today. And uh, this is kind of like a throwback Sunday here. We've got Josh doing the one-man band again. It's been a while. We've got, uh, it's toward the end of July. People are on vacation, and uh, we get the blessing of Josh and Kelsey this service. It was just Josh last service. Uh, but it reminds us of, uh, he did that for a year. He led Hope Church for about a year that way, uh, uh, back in the day. So it's fun. But next week, the whole band will be back, and so we can prepare in excitement for that. So we've been going through this series called Riches, Honor, and Life that Ben has been guiding us through. I'm David. I'm one of the pastors here today. Uh, ben um, is taking a break today. Uh, and he'll be back in that Proverbs series. We're going to stick with the same theme of riches, riches, honor, and life, but we're going to dip into Ephesians. So if you have a copy of the Bible, you can turn or tap your way to Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. We're really going to be in the whole first three chapters of Ephesians. If you don't have a copy of the Bible, don't panic. The words will be on the screen. And we have paper copies of the Bible sitting right here and on the front table. We'd love to give you one. Today's one of those days that would be really good for a paper Bible because we're going to jump around in those first three chapters. So, riches, honor, and life. Now, for those of you that have never been here before, don't worry. That's not a prosperity gospel message. Uh, although in the first three chapters of Ephesians, we have riches mentioned five times. We have inheritance mentioned three times. We have um, rich mentioned, mentioned once time and other kinds of things like that. So certainly there's something in Ephesians that deals with the riches of Christ that we're going to explore today. And since we're going to do the first three chapters of Ephesians, for those that have kind of a 21st century uh, attention span... Uh, just remember that it, this is one full letter. And in the first century, they would have read the whole thing, they would have sang a couple of songs, and then they would have gone and eaten something, or they would have eaten something right there. So that would have been a first century church service. So we're only going to do half of that, uh, but we'll do it a little bit faster. So, uh, so we've got Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, and this is what it says. It says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, we have this beautiful passage of Ephesians. And for the Christian, it's very familiar. If you're new to Christianity, it's new, and it should be incredible and mind-blowing. And oftentimes, when we have the gospel like this, we, we may know what the gospel is, we know what the answer we've got is in the gospel, but we don't necessarily know what the question is. We don't necessarily know today, I don't know today, and you may not know today, 
what's bothering you, what your problem is. You may not know why you're anxious. You just can't put your finger on it, but you don't feel right. There's something missing or there's something wrong with you. Well, we must examine ourselves in triage to determine where the bleeding is coming from so we can apply the tourniquet in the right place. And so when I'm feeling like this sometimes, I'm just looking to daily devotionals. I'm looking to God and the scripture to see what he's telling me. And one of the things that I'm looking for is I look in, uh, many of you know I'm a big Paul David Tripp fan. He's got a little devotional. I go to that often. And he gives us these three diagnostic questions that I think are very uh, helpful. Because in Ephesians 2, 3, we just read it. It said, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So there's, there's something going on that is reflective of, uh, of kind of our old life or a life outside of Christ. And so here are three good diagnostic questions for us this morning as we get started. The first is, will I have what I need? The fear of poverty is one that plagues us all. The second is, will I be loved? The fear of rejection is something very common to all people. Will people tolerate me once they really get to know me? The fear of judgment is real. And oftentimes we walk in these things day to day. Now, this is not an exhaustive list. Ben has done a really good job through the Proverbs of talking about asking us, where does our security and satisfaction lie? And... Uh, and we, when we talk about riches, honor, and life, those three things are, you know, headlines, they're in the Proverbs, they're ways, they're lenses in which we've looked into the Proverbs and looked at our own life. But I'm going to get really specific about the way those three things can work out sometimes in our lives, and that's through three things, house, job, and family. Riches, honor, and life, house, job, and family. Many of you know that we have, uh, we have seven kids, and we've been looking for a house, and if you've been in the housing market at all recently, it is a nightmare, and I think everybody understands that. We've actually been, uh, we've, we've put four offers in on houses in the last six months. Now, others of you uh, uh, don't know that we, we have six kids living in the home, and some of those share bedrooms. We've got five kids sharing one bathroom, but we're actually bringing on a live-in intern with us Next week, she comes. You'll get to meet her. She's an old family friend. So she's added to the mix. So now we've got six kids, three bedrooms, one bathroom for those six kids. It's a little tight. Now, look, our grandparents all did it with outhouses or whatever. So we're very blessed. We have indoor plumbing. We have air conditioning. Don't, don't cry for me. Everything's going to be fine. Uh, but we don't have a laundry room, and we don't have, you know, a lot of, a lot of space. We have, a, we have a great yard, and, as a matter of fact, Hope Church was planted in this house. And so we used to have up to 28 kids in those three bedrooms doing stuff on Sunday morning. So uh, it's better than that. So we're fine. Uh, we're very blessed. Um, but two weeks ago, we got under contract on this, on this particular house, and we're wrestling with these questions, these three questions with my kids as it relates to this house. We took them to the house. They liked the house. We wanted the house. Um, but in prayer, we just felt like God was saying no. And we didn't know exactly why, but we wanted to explain to the kids that this was, you know, God's decision despite kind of what we, what we wanted as a family. And so 
what God's been teaching me through these first three chapters uh, are kind of first for the, for the preacher. Anytime a preacher preaches a message, uh, God's got to be doing something in his own heart and life. The, the sermon is for the preacher first, and then in this case, my kids, and then, and then you get the benefit, is my hope. And so, uh, one of the things he showed me in Ephesians 2.6, he tells me this. He says, that I'm raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That, that God himself is giving me a home. And then in John 14, 2, he says this, In my Father's house are many rooms. This is Jesus talking. If it were not so, would I have not told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Jesus has a place for me to live. God himself, who is homeless on earth, has a place. He started in a barn. And so in the same way, Paul, who writes this letter to the Ephesians, he's writing this letter from jail. This is, he's under house arrest. He's in jail. He has no home. And so Jesus and Paul are examples, but this message is not just toughen up because Paul and Jesus did, but there's a secret that Paul has got that he's going to reveal to us. There's a secret that God has for us in the Gospels and specifically in Ephesians. It's a kind of secret that, uh, that Andy had in Shawshank Redemption, the prison movie classic. Red is describing Andy, and he says he's just different. There's something different about him. A walk and a talk that wasn't normal around here in the prison yard. He strolled like a man in a park without a care in the world, like he had on an invisible coat to shield him from this place. That sounds pretty good. So what was his secret? Well, his secret was he was planning his escape. But that's not our secret. What's the secret we're going to learn today? Paul mentions this deep secret in another jailhouse letter that he writes to the Philippians. And this is what he says in Philippians 4, 11 through 13. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So it's not just that we have a dwelling place with God in eternity but he's got something else for us here. He's got something deeper, richer on earth here. Yesterday, I had a brief break, and I took John to the skate park for an hour, my uh, nine-year-old son. And he had all kinds of pads on, and he was hot. It was blazing hot outside. And, but he had begged to go. He went with a friend about a week ago. He's very excited about skating now. So we went, and we're on the way home. And I look over, and I bought him a sun kiss. And he's just sucking on that sun kiss, and the sun's coming through. He's all sweaty. And uh, had a big grin on his face. And I said, hey, are you content? And he didn't even look at me. And he didn't even blink. And he said, yes. <laughs> and it was just beauty from a nine-year-old. Now, he was content because he got to go to the skate park and he had a sun kissed. So simple things for him. But he wasn't in need. Paul's got a different secret here. He's, he's learned how to be content in plenty and in need. So Ephesians 2, 19 through 22 starts to tap into this that Paul's talking about. When he says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Not only do we have a house 
in eternity. We have a home here, and we are that home. That God himself indwells us. That's a beautiful thing. This is an inside job. He dines with us. So do we have a house? Will we have provision? He's answered that question in the gospel. Now, for some of you, raw provision is not what's at the forefront of your mind. It's not what gives you anxiety. Maybe it's the job portion of what we're going to talk about today, because the job portion is provision, but it's also, it's also identity. So it asks the question, will I have? But also asks the question, what do people think of me? When you think about what people do, even in the Bible, people are described by what they do, their job. There's Alexander the coppersmith, and you have other things like that. You have other job descriptions that identify the individual. That's why we have so many smiths, because there were a lot of blacksmiths, I guess, in America. We've got a ton of smiths, and it's core to our identity. I can remember early in our marriage, uh, I used to work for a medical company, and I thought it was a great job, and it was a great job, and it was, uh, I felt like it did give me honor and a standing in the community. And when God called me out of that into ministry, I didn't have a job for a while. Now, my job was to get uh, a couple of houses ready to travel light, and there were some things I was doing, but I didn't have a job. So people would say, what do you do? And I would constantly say, well, I used to work with neurosurgeons, orthopedic surgeons, very important stuff, blah, 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 blah. And I kept repeating that phrase, used to, used to. And God finally convicted me of that. that that's, you are trying to put your identity in some honor piece that is no longer, it's not your identity. And so I was convicted of that. And it, and it makes me think about how we cl so closely identify ourselves with what we do, and yet God's calling us to something different. The Memphis sanitation workers in 1968, right before Martin Luther King Jr. was killed, went on a strike, and that was the whole point of the march. And they went on a strike because they needed better wages. Uh, many of them uh, didn't even have enough wages to be off of welfare. But also, there was a great, uh, there were great dangers of the job in the sanitation department. Echol Cole and Robert Walker were two men who were crushed by a malfunctioning truck that the cities were refusing to uh, do maintenance on these trucks. And these two men were killed. And their brothers within the sanitation department came and they went on strike. And they carried these signs around that say, I am a man, not a garbage man. They wanted to be called sanitation workers. I'm a man. Talking about their own dignity. They didn't want to be defined by garbage. No more than a stay-at-home mom wants to be defined by a dirty diaper. And we've got young mothers out here are, who are crying and crying out. I'm not doing a good job at anything. I'm failing at everything. I mean, it's at the core. What we do is at the core of our identity. And this kind of insecurity that makes some people cry, it drives others to be fakers. Exaggerating our accomplishments. Putting on Instagram a picture, an image of what doesn't really represent your life at all. And we become these professional fakers. But Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says that you're not defined by your accomplishments, but by the accomplishments of another. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Paul David Tripp says, Grace 
frees you from faking what you don't have and boasting about what you didn't earn. So good. So Paul, our secret holder, his Instagram ha- handle is prisoner. Ephesians 4.1 just says, I'm a prisoner. What a, what a bold statement to make in that culture, and even in our culture now, that where a prisoner is, one, is something associated with shame and guilt. There's a curse on a prisoner. And yet he's a prisoner for the right reasons, enough that he's able to say in Ephesians 1.1 1, 1, that he's an apostle, that God's called him an apostle. And in Ephesians 3.7, he said he's made a minister by God. So he's got these other titles, these other identities. And the fact that he's made a minister means he's duty-bound to share the gospel. And that's our calling too. And so whatever your job is, your duty-bound gift of God and part of your identity is an ambassador for Christ. And so as an ambassador, if you want to change the world, there's all kinds of companies saying they're going to change the world. And if you want to get a job in Utah or if you want to hire some employees, you got to say, hey, this is how we're going to change the world. You should work with our team. Well, oftentimes they're just serving coffee. We're going to change the world one espresso at a time or whatever that is. But we're duty-bound to share the gospel, and if you want to share the gospel, if you want to change the world, come this Tuesday night at 6 o'clock here at this building. We're going to have two mission teams that are coming in from out of town to help with our Colorado City trip, and we're going to be doing some training on how to make a disciple in Utah. Don't let your insecurity about sharing the gospel keep you from your God-given duty and privilege to do that. And so come on Tuesday night, and we'll help you get equipped. Ephesians 2.10 says... We are his workmanship. So what's God doing? Who are we? We're God's work. We're God's work created for his work, creating Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So our identity is not only as an ambassador, but it's also as a reconciler. Look at 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 20, that says, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So you are a reconciler. You've been given the ministry of reconciliation. You're an ambassador. And 1 Corinthians 6.3 says you're a judge. It says, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? You're a judge. Now, who wants to be a judge? A lot of people would say, who made you judge? Or who am I to judge? But somebody's got to judge. Rhonda peeked in my office as I was preparing the sermon with a Lunchable with a slit across the top and an opening in the package. And she said, hey, can John eat this? I said, nope. She said, thanks. And she walked out. I was a judge. Well on my way to judging angels by judging the Lunchable, whether it was appropriate for my son. So she was very grateful that I was a judge in that moment. And what does, he, what does it even mean to be a judge? You decide, you rule, you assign benefit or liability and you all like to do it. Even though people don't like the, the term judgmental, that's something different that we're talking about here. We all judge. Just look on a KSL crime story and read the comments of the people that comment on the crime story. 
I do this all the time. It's a big blast because uh, there's some heinous crime. They report it. And then all the comments, they're not like, oh, yes, he should get 25 to life. Or, oh, this person should uh, get the death penalty. Or, it's not reasonable. It's like, oh, you should turn him upside down and pour acid into his ears until it drips out his eyeballs. And, I mean, this is the kind of thing that people write because they have a sense of justice. And you have a sense of justice. God has built that in us. It's why we like crime dramas and why we like the Innocence Project. So being a judge is just part of what we do and what an honor it is to be able to be a judge in God's kingdom. Think about we call judges your honor. We give honor to Supreme Court justices or to some of them. The ability for someone to say, hey, who needs resolution? And I'm going to be able to give you resolution. For those of you, especially guys who are afraid that heaven is going to be uh, eternal choir practice, this should give you some joy because you get to reign as king with the king. And this fun little tidbit about angels, just imagine angels are without sin, all right? So it's only fallen angels that are with sin that would need to be judged. Fallen angel is a what? Anybody? Demon. That's right. A demon. So we'll get to judge demons. And just imagine you get to judge the demon that gave some particular harassment to you. I don't know how all this works, but it sounds pretty cool, actually. We have a purpose in heaven, and it's to rule. Revelation 3.21 tells us that. It says, or do you not know that the saints, uh, skip to Revelation 3.21, if you would. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. We get to sit and reign with God. So how does this throne sitting even work? Revelation 2.26 says that Jesus will rule the nations and us with him. But I've also often wondered, how does this even work? Uh, I'm a little bit afraid that God will sit on me. He says, come sit on the throne, but God's pretty big. How do I fit in this picture? I have a, a TV chair at my house, a leather chair, and it's really built for one person. But oftentimes, my kids, especially my two boys, they'll come and they'll want to go hip to hip. They, want, they, they say, scoot over, but it's, there's a, I can't scoot over anymore. And they cram in there hip to hip, and it hurts. They don't stay there long. And I think about that sometimes with God. But that's not the picture that God gives us in Ephesians 1, 20 through, to, through 23. And it says... And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. There is a union with Christ. We are built for oneness. It's pictured in marriage. There is a, there is a one flesh union in marriage that is a picture of how we're going to be united with Christ. So he won't sit on us. We'll sit. He's the head. We'll be attached to him. We'll be so intricately in Christ, that we'll be together reigning with him on the throne. That is a beautiful thing. So how does this future glory, though, you might ask, change us now? Okay, we have that whenever we're dead and we're in heaven, but how does that change us now? Well, Ephesians 3, 10 through 13, Paul explains the whole gospel so that through the church, that's us, the manifold wisdom of God, the secret, might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. 
The so is, Paul's in prison. Many of these people may be in prison. You may feel like you're in prison. And this is the way, this knowledge of God, this knowledge of what's to come should give us hope in the moment so that we can endure suffering. Paul knows this secret and is revealing it to us. So you do have job security, job identity as an ambassador, a reconciler, and a judge. But many of you say, well, what about love? Will I be loved? That may be the question that haunts you. And usually we're talking about how that plays out in our families. Now, the older I get, the more affinity and appreciation I get for Chevy Chase and Clark Griswold in the original vacation. Now, original vacation, Christmas vacation is okay. European, eh, it just gets worse. And disclaimer here, I always tell these stories because I watch these movies on like USA Network and you have five hours of commercials, but I always forget with streaming services, you're getting the original. So disclaimers, this is not one that I would show to the kids. Uh, I've made that mistake before. Kids, you should watch this 80s movie. It's great. And then, ah, oh, I got to mute it so fast. Clark Griswold freaks out. And so if you remember a freak out scene in that movie where Aunt Edna is dead, she died on the top of the car, it's a rainstorm, he's just dropping her off and leaving a note on the brother-in-law's house or whatever. And they get back in the car and the family says, we're just gonna, we just want to go home, Dad, come on, this is a drag, this is terrible. And he just loses it and goes haywire. And uh, he starts screaming about, uh, he was on a quest, I'm on a quest, this is a quest, it's a quest to see a moose. Praise to Marty Moose. And uh, he's understanding the idiocy of this. Uh, but I think the reason I like it, and the reason I like it more and more, is he's got this devotion to make his family happy. He thinks he's delivering to his family what the, what's going to make him happy. And when he's in handcuffs after another freakout at the very end, and he's explaining to Roy Wally about the big, you know, handcuff, big, the big problem with taking everybody hostage at the amusement park, He's explaining this to Roy Wally. He says, hey, Roy, did you ever take uh, your kids on a trip? He's like, oh, yeah, the smell was terrible. I took them to Florida. It was terrible. He said, well, just imagine if when you got to Florida, Florida was closed. He says, well, they don't close Florida. He says, oh, yes, I know, but Wally World was closed, Roy. you got to understand. If you were me, wouldn't you do the same for your children? And Roy said, no, I, I wouldn't. You've done this ter terrible stuff. Well, it just, it seems like what he's doing and what we're trying to do is we want to give our kids what we think we needed. And so we want to bottle up nostalgia and try to kind of deliver it to our kids because that's what we think we needed because we want them to feel loved. And so when you ask, will I ever be loved and will my kids ever be loved? We've got to go to the gospel, because no matter how great your family is, they will never provide ultimate satisfaction. And no matter how bad your family situation is, your peace is not ultimately dependent upon your reconciliation with that family. Now, we pursue reconciliation. We've been given a ministry of reconciliation. That's what we want to do. But our ultimate peace will not be found there eternally. Ephesians 1, 3 through 6 tells us where it is found. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing 
in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. We are adopted in Christ. We in Christ are family. We are brothers and sisters. Hey, do you know who my dad is? My dad is the king of the universe. So my identity can be found in him. Because we're always born into the wrong family. Ephesians 2, 2, and 3 says we were born in the wrong family. It says uh, that in this, in this way in which you just walked, in, in, your de- in your trespasses and sin, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. This is how we're born, children of wrath. Now, if any of you know my youngest son, Moses, he is a handful. And he's, but he's very verbal, and he can speak to you, and he understands you, but he throws stuff everywhere and acts like a nut. And occasionally I'll just say, hey, do you, what's wrong with you? Are you a child of the devil? Do you love the devil? And he'll say, no, I love God. I hate the devil. All right, that's the right answer. Now pick up all this stuff you just threw down and stop punching your sister. And, you know, he doesn't act like it because he's not. He's not yet a child of God. God will save him by God's grace. Please pray for Moses. Now. The the deal is, though, the rest of mankind is in the same boat. You are in the same boat. Outside of Christ, you're like the rest of mankind. So the next time your teenager says, well, like everyone else wears those kind of shorts or like everyone else has that type of phone or everyone else is able to have an Instagram account, just say, okay, and they're all children of wrath and you are called to something better. So for our students and for my children, I thought about a lot of this at camp. We had camp this summer, and camp is a crazy environment where these kids are just so worried about what everybody thinks of them. Um, And they are a lot of times substituting friends for a a family. They're, They're looking and they're asking, will people tolerate me once they get to know me? This fear of judgment and rejection is real and debilitating and it's dangerous. And we have to speak to our kids about this. We have to speak to them and say, you're, you're looking for your identity and how people perceive you. But we have a hope for you. Don't do that. We have a hope. Ephesians 2, 12 through 16 says, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. He himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of the commandments, expressing ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. That is good news for our teenagers and it's good news for you. You're no longer a stranger. You're no longer an alien. You're brought into the most intimate relationship. You're members of the most exclusive and inclusive club. Welcome. 
And he is our peace and he is our friend, just like that song that we sang. So what is, where does all this go? Is it just for our peace? Is it just for our joy? No, it's for his glory. 321 says, To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is all about God's glory. We are most satisfied when God is most glorified. And God is glorified in our satisfaction. And our deepest satisfaction is found in him. It's found in the gospel. It starts in Ephesians 1.6 with this. Ephesians 1.6 says, To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. That is good news. It should press us to gratitude because we can't have worship without gratitude for what he promises for the future, but what he's already given us right now. You belong to something bigger. You're intimately connected to someone much greater, and you can belong to the perfect family. We're about to do Lord's Supper here in just a minute. We're a church family. Now, if you're not part yet of that family of faith, I'd ask you not to take the Lord's Supper. Josh will give all the kind of warnings that are found in Scripture about all of that. But if you are in the family of faith, we're saying, hey, listen, the family of faith is a bunch of sinners. Sinners trying to live with sinners. And we say that all the time. Okay, that's true. But that's not the whole truth. The whole truth is that we are a people Chosen by God, indwelt by his spirit, have God living in us. We can look at another believer and say, God is in you and he is in me. That's a beautiful thing. It's a, it's a beautiful family to live in. And he's making a house of us with Christ as the cornerstone. So my prayer for you, Hope Church, is the same prayer that Paul has for the Ephesians in Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. And I'm going to read this passage as my prayer for us, for you, Hope Church. is how we're going to close this part of the service, and then we're going to have Lord's Supper. So, so bow your heads with me. I'm not going to get on my knees, but I am in my mind and spirit going to be on my knees. But let me, let me pray now for us. For this reason... I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you, Hope Church, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend this great secret that we've been talking about with all the saints, what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations for and ever and ever. Amen.